When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. Now the narrative we've been following doesn't stop for long. The aftermath of the sons of Mosiah's mission that we've seen in the destruction of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's and the joining of more than the number that were slain, the repeating rounds of opposition and conviction and conversion, second and third chances to join this group. We see all of that. We'll see it pick up again in Alma 27. But Mormon interrupts the flow of the narrative to include one incredible chapter. One of the most beautiful in all the Book of Mormon, in my opinion, Alma chapter 26. Now, one way to see Alma 26 is as if it were Ammon's missionary homecoming talk. It's always amazing to see young elders and sisters or senior missionaries come home from their missions and report, to speak in sacrament meeting and talk about the experiences that they've had. Those are some of the most powerful messages we get in sacrament meeting. Because it's people whose lives have been changed as they've been involved in seeing God change the lives of those that they're serving. Well, Alma 26 is Ammon's homecoming address. And just like when you listen to a mission homecoming talk from an elder or sister that's been out and just came home, it's like, wow, they grew up a lot in the time that they were gone. Well, of course, God got free reign to work with them, right? Some personal tutoring. The same could be said of Ammon here. Compared to the punk kid that he and his brothers were back before the angel came to intercede, there's been some incredible growing up in the 14 years that they spent among the Lamanites. And notice how Ammon begins it in verse 1. Now these are the words of Ammon to his brethren, which say thus, My brothers and my brethren, brothers by blood and brothers by faith, Behold, I say unto you, how great reason have we to rejoice. Even after all they've been through, even after all their converts have been through, we have great reason to rejoice. For could we have supposed when we started from the land of Zarahemla that God would have granted unto us such great blessings? What a great title to describe any missionary memoir. Such great blessings. He says in 2, I ask, what great blessings has he bestowed upon us? Can ye tell? Count those many blessings. Name them one by one. Tell people about them. Remind yourself of these things. I think the more that we remembered from our missions, the less we would forget about God and his place in our lives. But much of the rest of this chapter, he will answer his own question. Can you tell what the blessings of a faithful mission are? Can you tell what blessings of service in the kingdom of God might bring? Well, here's his beginning. Verse 3, I answer for you. For our brethren, there's always been that perspective on each other. Not our enemy, our brethren, the Lamanites, were in darkness, yea, even in the darkest abyss. But behold, how many of them are brought to behold the marvelous light of God. And this is the blessing which hath been bestowed upon us. So far, it seems he's focusing on the blessing bestowed upon the Lamanites. They went from darkness to light. But what was our blessing? That we got to be a part of it. That we have been made instruments in the hands of God to bring about this great work. Not that we could do it, but that God could do it and use us in the process. We were instruments in his hands. And when God uses you as an instrument, his fingerprints get all over you. And you'll never be the same as a result. I love that line in More Holiness Give Me. More used would I be. Do you have that one tool that's kind of your go-to? 
that trusty hammer or the screwdriver that seems to use everything or the Swiss Army knife or the multi-tool. It's like, oh, it does everything that I need. To be that kind of a servant of God, a go-to gal, a go-to guy, an instrument in his hands so that he could bring about his great work. Verse 4, thousands of them do rejoice. We were rejoicing in one because they are rejoicing in four. Their joy causes ours. They've been brought into the fold of God. Now he quickly shifts from the sheep analogy in four, the fold of God, to the farm analogy in five. Behold, the field was ripe and blessed are ye. He doesn't even say we here. He's looking at his brethren like, do you have any idea what God allowed us to do? What he did through us? Blessed are ye, for ye did thrust in the sickle and did reap with your might. Yea, all the day long did ye labor. And behold the number of your sheaves. But again, it's not about quantity. It's about quality. And these people, distinguished for their righteousness, never did fall away. Talk about quality. And quality in terms of longevity. They shall be gathered into the garners that they are not wasted. No wonder they never fell away. They were in the garner where good wheat is stored to be used later in the bread of life. For us, the garner is the temple. The Lord seems to suggest that in a parable he teaches in section 101. If we can help people get there, there's no better to maintain and retain what we have obtained than continuing to make higher and holier covenants in the house of the Lord. It's there that converts will not be wasted. I think all missionaries worry about their converts. I know I did. You get that sense from Ammon and his brethren worried about the ongoing lives of their converts, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. What's going to become of them? We've got to get them to the garner somehow. I remember teaching one woman on my mission that was such a golden investigator. Seriously, blew me away how much she already knew. She'd already read principles of the gospel before we even started to teach her. And she was baptized very, very quickly. But you never know what's going to happen in the long run. I got transferred, went on with my mission. But a year later, I was transferred in a new area. My companion was introducing me to some people and said, oh, you're going to love our branch mission leader. He is awesome. I'm like, great, let's go meet him. And he said, he's out of the country right now. He's up in Florida, actually. He's getting sealed in the temple in Orlando. I thought, oh, that's awesome. And he said, oh, and you gotta, you're going to love his wife. Convert to the church on fire. This is going to be a power couple in this area. I said, great. Well, a week later, we went to go meet them. And guess who the convert was that this return missionary branch mission leader had married in the temple? The same woman that I had baptized a year before. I couldn't believe it. I just thought, you have been to the garner and you will not be wasted. What a touching reunion it was. In verse 6, Ammon continues, they shall not be beaten down by the storm at the last day. The storms will come to every convert, to every lifelong member. But in the garner, you're not beaten down by them. It's almost like you can hear the winds howling outside, but you feel safe within. When they built the temple in Manhattan, they were concerned about traffic noise outside. It is Manhattan after all. But the way that temple was built, they described it was almost like a temple within a temple. And they said very few connecting points between the two so that there was this layer of sound insulation, just empty space between the outer walls and the inner. I love the thick, thick walls of the temple. Thick enough to keep the world out, to keep the storm at bay so I'm not beaten down by it. Neither shall they be harrowed up by the whirlwinds. Same kind of idea. But when the storm cometh, not if, when, they shall be gathered together in their place. Is there a more beautiful description of the temple than that? To be gathered there, Joseph Smith taught that the purpose of gathering in any age is to build temples. And so as we're gathering to this garner, but he calls it in their place. It's not just God's place. It's your place too. Do you feel that way? Do you feel like you're coming home? There's a beautiful hymn, not in our hymn book, but a beautiful Christian hymn. And it ends with this description of 
coming into God's presence. And it says this beautiful line. You can almost feel the evolution, the progress of this. It says, No more a stranger nor a guest, but as a child at home. It is your place. I hope you don't feel like a stranger there. You shouldn't. I mean, the doors open automatically. Just step up and they come. Come in. Not even a guest anymore, but a child at home. So comfortable in God's house because you know it's your house too. Not just his place, your place. That the storm cannot penetrate to them. Again, there's those thick walls. It cannot penetrate. Neither shall they be driven with fierce winds whithersoever the enemy listeth to carry them. Storm, whirlwind, fierce wind, beaten down, harrowed up, driven. But none of that can penetrate. If you've ever been in freezing cold climates, it's all about layers, right? That cold can penetrate this t-shirt easily. Well, it might penetrate the sweatshirt and the t-shirt, but can it penetrate the parka and the sweater and the hoodie and the sweatshirt and the, you know what I mean? I'm a wimpy Southern Californian, so moving to Utah forced me to grapple with some layer issues. How deep can the cold penetrate until I feel it? Well, honestly, there have been times where I go to the temple and come out feeling like God has added one more layer to me. Seriously, this feels like more than just an analogy. It really does almost literally feel like there is a layer, a protective layer. And it makes it just that much more difficult for the world and its wickedness, for life and its cares to penetrate into the parts of me that matter. If I'm still feeling those tugs and pulls, maybe I need to go back a little more often to have more layers and layers covering me to keep that kind of worldly penetration at bay. Best part of it all, verse 7, yes, it's their place, but it is, after all, His. He is the Lord of the harvest, and you are in His hands when you come into his garner. They are in the hands of the Lord of the harvest. They've got his fingerprints on them too. They are his. He will raise them up at the last day. There's that haunting line that Jesus says to Peter at the Last Supper, where he says that Satan desireth to have thee, that he may sift thee as wheat. The JST even adds, that he may sift the children of the kingdom as wheat. Satan wants to sift us. You get this mental image of him kind of picking up a handful of grain and just letting it fall through his fingers, as if he's saying, I've got you right where I want you. But this seems to suggest the alternate vision. Alma 26, 7, that the grain that is gathered into the garner is in the Lord's hands. He wants to sift us as wheat as well. Not in some sense of control, but rather the sense of what a beautiful thing I have before me. My children have come home. Remember Elder Uchtdorf talked about being a child growing up in post-war Germany? Poverty-stricken. And when he received cans of wheat from the church's granaries in America, he would run his fingers through them and just feel the goodness of the saints that had contributed to his well-being. I don't know, there's something about what Elder Uchtdorf described there that comes to mind in reading verse 7, that God senses the goodness of his grain. We're in his hands. How does Ammon feel about all this? Verse 8, Blessed be the name of our God. Let us sing to his praise. Let us give thanks to his holy name, for he doth work righteousness forever. God deserves the credit here. Give it to him. But help. He wants us to. Verse 9, if we had not come up out of the land of Zarahemla, these are dearly beloved brethren who have so dearly beloved us, love in both directions, would still have been racked with hatred against us. Yea, they would also have been strangers to God. You see how he describes it? Alma talked about being racked with endless torment, the thought of being judged in his sins. 
Well, even if the Lamanites didn't know any better and were sinning in some sense of ignorance, they were still racked with hatred. And that can be just as devastating a feeling. They would still feel that way against us. They would still be strangers to God. There's the vertical and horizontal components of discipleship again. Love of God and love of neighbor. Now you see the interplay of 8 and 9? 8 is all about what God has done. It's his name. It's his praise. He's the one that works righteousness forever. But look at what he let us participate in. We had a part to play and he let us play it. It reminds me of when Jesus goes to John the Baptist and says, will you baptize me? And John is hesitant, recognizing his own inadequacy and says, whoa, whoa, I should be coming to you to be baptized. I don't, I don't even, I'm not even worthy to unloose your shoe latchet. And the Lord's reassuring response, I love, he says, John, suffer it to be so. For thus it becometh, and then the most beautiful, generous pronoun because it's plural. Thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. He didn't just say, I have to fulfill all righteousness, John. I have to be baptized and I can't exactly do it to myself. Yours is just a token role, but play it, will you? No, it's John, you and me together, us. We are going to fulfill all righteousness with this act. And it seems like Ammon is saying the same in 8 and 9. The Lord does his work and he uses us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, Aaron doesn't quite catch the nuance there yet. So he begins to rebuke him and says to him in verse 10, Ammon, careful brother, I fear that thy joy doth carry thee away unto boasting. Now, I'll admit there's a fine line between joy and boasting, between confidence and pride. But Ammon clearly knows that he has not crossed that line. He says in verse 11, I do not boast in my own strength. It's not about me. I don't boast about my own wisdom. I don't deny that I have them. There seems to be this counterfeit for humility, which looks more like self-deprecation, where somebody comes to you with a compliment and you just go, oh, no, 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 that's not me at all. Instead of accepting the compliment and then passing it on to the one who really deserves it. To acknowledge one's strength or wisdom, but not to boast in it as if it were yours alone, rather to give credit where credit is due, the source of that strength and wisdom. He says, behold, my joy is full. My heart is brim with joy. Sorry if it's overflowing. Sorry if I'm spilling and getting a little on you. I just don't have a big enough heart to contain all the joy that God is pouring into it. So forgive me, brother, but I will rejoice in my God. Yea, I know that I am nothing. As to my strength, I am weak. You can almost hear Paul here, right? When I am weak, then I am strong. Therefore, I will not boast of myself, but I will boast of my God. For in his strength, I can do all things. Yea, behold, many mighty miracles we have wrought in this land, for which we will praise his name forever. You see this beautiful synergy between God and his servants? And the the desire, the joy, the happiness, the praise seems to be going back and forth and back and forth. Aaron struggles with that a little. Ammon is just rejoicing it. He's in the middle of it. I can't believe God is using us. But all the credit to him. Again, Paul is such a great echo of this when he says to the Philippians, for example, that I can do all things through Christ that strengtheneth me. That's grace. That's enabling power. It's exercising that power ourselves, but acknowledging the source of that power, which is God. Verse 13, behold, how many thousands of our brethren has he, not us, has he loosed from the pains of hell. They are brought to sing redeeming love. Remember how Alma said that back in Alma 5? Once we break the chains of hell and the bands of death that bind us, then our soul can expand And what do we do with that increased lung capacity? We sing. We sing the song of redeeming love. That's exactly what Ammon is speaking of. He's loosed them from the pains of hell, and with newly filled lungs they are brought to sing redeeming love. This because of the power of his word, which happened to be in us. Us, him, our mouths, but his words. What a companionship we've been. 
Have we not great reason to rejoice? Yea, we have reason to praise him forever. For he is the most high God. He has loosed our brethren from the chains of hell, just like he did to us beforehand. Yea, they were encircled about with everlasting darkness and destruction, but behold, he has brought them into his everlasting light. Yea, into everlasting salvation, and they are encircled about with the matchless bounty of his love. You see the shift he's just described? From being encircled in darkness and destruction to being encircled in light and salvation through the matchless bounty of his love. Then again at the end, and we have been instruments in his hands of doing this great and marvelous work. Ammon is just giddy. He's beside himself that he got to help, that he got to play a part, not the starring role. He never asked for that, never needed it. To God goes all the glory. And I'm just grateful he let us tag along. He multiplied the loaves and the fishes, but he gave us the baskets to pass it all out. There's a great verse in the Doctrine and Covenants where the Lord is wanting to set apart a new bishop. And he says in that verse, I will lay my hands upon you. It's like, whoa, God's going to lay his hands on me. And then he says, well, by the hands of my servant, Sidney Rigdon. They're going to look like Sidney's hands, feel like Sidney's hands. But don't let looks deceive you. They will be mine. Well, here you see those hands speaking up for themselves. Like those were God's hands, but he used ours to accomplish his work. Again, fingerprints, divine fingerprints all over. Therefore, verse 16, let us glory. Yea, we will glory in the Lord. Yea, we will rejoice, for our joy is full. Yea, we will praise our God forever. Behold, who can glory too much in the Lord? Who can say too much of his great power and of his mercy and of his long suffering towards the children of men? You might think I'm glorying too much, Aaron. But I cannot say the smallest part which I feel. My cup is too small. No wonder it runneth o'er. No wonder I'm brim with joy. There's not room enough inside me. My voice isn't loud enough as I yell. Who can say enough about God? Verse 16 reminds me of my wonderful evangelical brothers and sisters that I've met in the South and have since met doing interfaith work here in Utah. More than most other groups I know, they glory in the Lord. And they're not shy about it. I think it's sad sometimes to watch Latter-day Saints in their company almost feel uncomfortable, a little awkward, like, ooh, I, I think they're glorying a little too much in the Lord. Oh, what a shame. Come on, read a little more Ammon. Channel him yourself a little bit more and rejoice. In fact, look at our worship from their perspective and it'll open your eyes. I've talked to many of those groups that come to Utah to meet the Latter-day Saints during their spring break. They'll often go to an LDS sacrament meeting on a Sunday when they're here and then kind of make the rounds through the various institutes in Utah to meet with Latter-day Saint young adults, their peers, same age group, and just engage typically in three-hour discussions where they just have conversations together about personal beliefs and experiences and doctrine and history and just what you believe and what I believe and it, they're amazing experiences. Incredible. But I have heard from many of my evangelical friends that when they go to LDS sacrament meeting, it's a little underwhelming for them. Now, in our defense, it may be that they're used to a house band, electric guitars and drums, Evangelical music can be much more overpowering than the LDS hymn book. But honestly, I think it goes beyond that. Some have talked about they happen to be there on a fast Sunday and to hear Latter-day Saints bear their testimony without a whole lot of glorying in the Lord. I've often thought about that phrase that Jesus uses with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. That the Father seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Latter-day Saints might look at evangelicals or others and think, well, you're a little lacking in truth. But I hope we have the holy envy to admit that they more than make up for it in spirit. And I sometimes worry that we Latter-day Saints hide behind our truth as an excuse for a certain lack of spirit in what we're trying to say. So praise God. 
glory in the Lord. Let your joy increase to fullness and overflowing. May the smallness of our smallest part be that size because we couldn't possibly say any more, not because we don't have anything more to say. To me, the saddest example is whenever we have a Hosanna shout that seems instead to be a little bit closer to a Hosanna whimper. W.W. Phelps was right. We'll sing and we'll shout. That's what we're supposed to be doing. It's the Hosanna shout. It's not, we'll sing and we'll mumble. We'll sing and we'll awkwardly look around going, is somebody else doing the same thing I am with this handkerchief? This seems so out of character for us staid puritanical Latter-day Saints. Now, we can still maintain our reverence. Don't get me wrong. I'm not asking for rock concerts in the chapel. Believe me, I am very grateful. I do have holy envy for the spirit of my evangelical friends, but I have holy envy, it's not even envy, it's mine, for the reverence that we feel in our worship, whether in the chapel and especially in the temple. But there is a time to sing and shout, and we better sing and we better shout. I always worry when I see people in sacrament meeting not singing. I think, what's wrong? How can I keep from singing? Well, they seem to be able to. We need a little bit more Ammon in us, singing and shouting. When Lorenzo Snow gave the instructions for the Hosanna shout, when the Salt Lake Temple was dedicated in 1893, he put his emphasis on the word shout, believe me. Forty years of pent-up emotion watching this structure rise from the ground. Histories of abandoned temples in Kirtland and Nauvoo driving more of this emotion. And what did President Snow say, soon to be president of that temple? Shout these words to the very extent of your voice, so that every house in this city may tremble, the people in every portion of this city hear it, and it may reach to the eternal worlds. Remember Enos's phrase? I did raise my voice high that it reached the heavens. It doesn't have to be in terms of decibels, but it does need to be in terms of desire. How deeply do we feel what we are saying or singing or praising or thanking or rejoicing or glorying? I hope we feel more than we feel, even if we can only say the smallest part of it. 17, he gets down back into details to talk about what are these great blessings, can ye tell? Who could have supposed that our God would have been so merciful as to have snatched us from our awful, sinful, and polluted state? Remember, that's the word that Alma used himself earlier. I waded through afflictions, repenting of my sins, nigh unto death, but God in his mercy snatched me. Repentance might take a long time, but forgiveness can come quickly. 18, behold, we went forth even in wrath with mighty threatenings to destroy his church. So interesting what he's admitting there. We're seeing a little bit of detail here we didn't see back at the end of Mosiah when we saw their conversion. They went forth in wrath. What were they angry about? I don't know. Verse 19, why did he not consign us to an awful destruction? That's what we deserved. Why did he not let the sword of his justice fall upon us and doom us to eternal despair? That's what should have happened. Justice is when we get what we deserve. And he recognizes what he deserved. But he also recognizes what he got instead. Verse 20, my soul almost as it were fleeth at the thought. It's just kind of shudder of the soul. I can't believe I was that close. And I should have died that day, as we sometimes say in near-death experiences. How about I should have been judged that day. I should have been condemned that day. But I wasn't. Behold, he did not exercise his justice upon us. Instead, he exercised his mercy. In his great mercy, he hath brought us over that everlasting gulf of death and misery, even to the salvation of our souls. He brought us over on the bridge of grace. He didn't just reforge the chain that we had broken so we could try to swing again a second try on our better behavior. No. Justice we would have gotten what we deserved. Mercy, we didn't get what we deserved. And next level, grace, we got what we didn't deserve. Mercy and grace interceded here. Verse 21, he says an interesting thing. Behold, my brethren, what natural man is there that knoweth these things? 
and then he answers his own question, none. There are no natural men that know this. They can't be known by the natural man. This is Paul in 1 Corinthians 2. Some things can only be spiritually discerned. And this kind of happiness is off limits to anyone that has not put off the natural man and become a saint through the atonement of Christ. I'm not saying that wicked people can't be happy. Although I do agree with what Alma will later say, that wickedness never was happiness. Not true happiness anyway. Not lasting happiness. Pleasure? Sure. Fleeting fun? Definitely. But if you want to know this kind of happiness, there's only one way to get there. And that's to receive it from the hands of God himself. Now in 22, I love this verse because it seems to provide almost this framework of how to become the kind of person, disciple, missionary that Ammon himself was. 22, he says, He that repenteth, that's how he started, and exerciseth faith. We usually say faith and then repentance. Perhaps the order is less important as long as both of them are consistently there. And bringeth forth good works. Do something about it. It's not enough to just sit idly by with your faith and repentance. Faith is a principle of power, so it should motivate you. Repentance has turned you to God, so keep coming and do something with it. Pray continually without ceasing, because it's not just about your works. It's about being involved in God's works. So pray continually without ceasing. And what will happen if you do that? If repentance makes you clean and faith brings you power and works get you anxiously engaged and prayer brings the direction of heaven, then what happens? Three gifts are given you. And they are gifts. We haven't earned them. We haven't developed them. We have received them. Notice the three givens. Unto such it is given, here's the first one, to know the mysteries of God. If you're clean enough for the Spirit to be your companion and have the faith that He can speak, if you're going to do something with what He tells you and you're praying to open the windows of heaven, then He will make known to you. He will give you to know of His mysteries. With that, you're ready for the next gift because gifts are never given just for you. They're meant to be spread to others. So the second given, it shall be given to reveal things which never have been revealed, at least not to the person you're revealing them to, at least not to the person you're sharing the gospel with. You see, having received the mysteries of God, the first gift, then of course I now have things that have never been revealed in quite this way to this person. And that is how the third gift comes to both of you. It shall be given unto such to bring thousands of souls to repentance, even as it has been given unto us to bring these, our brethren, to repentance. I feel passionately about verse 22 because I want it to describe everything I do, especially as a teacher of the gospel. I want to repent so I can be worthy of the Spirit's companionship. I want to exercise my faith to believe that God's truth can come to me and come to others. I want to do good works, to be anxiously engaged in a good cause, to roll up my sleeves and just get into people's lives and try to share the gospel with them. I pray continually for that power and authority in teaching that will make a difference for people. And if my heart is pure, if I'm ready to be useful to him, then the rest of these gifts do come. I see it all the time. It is given to know the mysteries of God. I see things in scripture that I'd never seen before. And it's not about me. It's about him. Because he wants to reveal things to people that have never been revealed to them before. And to feel that happening is incredible as a teacher. To receive mysteries. Not some kind of unrevealed doctrine that prophets don't even know about. That's not what I'm talking about at all. This is not speculation that I'm trying to describe or some kind of esoteric Gnostic knowledge. No, these are the simple truths of the gospel, but they are revealed to me. That's what a mystery is. Things that can only be known by the Spirit. He's just said that certain things can't be known by natural men. Real happiness, for example. Well, even happiness then is a mystery to those that haven't had it revealed to them. But to feel God revealing his mysteries to me as I pour over his word, and then having the gift, and I consider it one, 
to be able to reveal to others things that have never been revealed to them in quite that way before. That's always my goal as a teacher. That people will walk away feeling, I've never seen it quite like that. Or that was a new insight. Or that was a deepened perspective. That's revelation. That's not me. That's him. But I get to be a part of it when he allows me to. That's how you bring thousands of souls to repentance. It's what I loved most about my mission. And it's what I love most about my life. Helping people home. My own children. Other people's children. Students. Friends. Wherever you might be. I'm thankful for the gift God gives me to teach. And the gift you offer me in being willing to receive that gift. Ammon then looks back a bit. That we said to our brethren in the land of Zarahemla, hey, we're going to go to the land of Nephi to preach to our brethren, the Lamanites. And what was their response? They laughed us to scorn. You guys are crazy. Are you insane? Don't get me wrong. I'm thrilled that you're no longer trying to destroy the church. Glad that you're now a faithful member. But the saints right here in Zarahemla need all kinds of help. Just ask Alma about what he's going to spend the rest of his life doing. Lamanites, though, lost cause. Don't get overzealous here. Wasn't that Zenith's problem generations ago? If you think they will change when their hatred of us is so deep-rooted, we've got half a millennium of water under this bridge. There's no way that they'll change. If Nephi and Lehi themselves couldn't affect a change of Laman and Lemuel's heart with their proximity, with their relationship, how on earth do you think you'll do anything to soften those hearts? 24, they said to us, do you suppose that you can bring the Lamanites to the knowledge of the truth? Do you suppose that you can convince the Lamanites of the incorrectness of the traditions of their fathers, as stiff-necked a people as they are, whose hearts delight in the shedding of blood, whose days have been spent in the grossest iniquity, whose ways have been the ways of a transgressor from the beginning? Now, my brethren, you remember, this was their language. I'm not making this up. In fact, we have the luxury of going back and reading some of what the Lord himself said about these people. Remember, a wild and ferocious people. But there was an opening in what they said. They kept saying, do you suppose, do ye suppose, that's the the y'all, okay, plural you, all y'all, you sons of, y'all sons of Mosiah, do y'all really think that you can change Lamanites? And I think Ammon and his brethren would quickly say, oh, no, 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 of course not. We don't think that we can do it at all, but he can. And he just needs willing instruments. And here we are. If anybody should know that stiff-necked people can become pliable, it's us. That's our story. Our days were spent in the grossest iniquity, but now we want to change things. More than that, 25, they even said, let us take up arms against them that we destroy them and their iniquity out of the land, lest they overrun us and destroy us. Let's launch a preemptive strike, shall we? They're probably going to attack us sooner or later, so let's attack them first. Let's destroy them and their iniquity. I bet Ammon would think, well, you're half right. I do want to destroy their iniquity, but I don't think we have to destroy them in the process. There is a distinction between sin and sinner, and I only want to eliminate one. So 26, but behold, my beloved brethren. I love that. The direction of the conversation is going in one way because of the Nephites. You're crazy for even thinking that this is going to work. But, he says, turning the conversation back towards God. But behold, my beloved brethren, we came into the wilderness not with the intent to destroy our brethren. Again, we're only here to destroy sin. But with the intent that perhaps, just maybe, just might, we might save some few of their souls. That's all the hope we had. But even that would have been worth it. 27, now when our hearts were depressed, that's a word that's a much bigger part of today's vocabulary than it was back then. But I love that he includes it. When our hearts were depressed. Jacob talks about anxiety all the time. Well, here Ammon is talking about depression. Hearts so depressed that they were about to turn back. That seems to describe depression pretty well. When you're just ready to curl up in a ball and cease to exist, not to feel anything 
in order to avoid feeling what you are feeling. To just turn back, to give up, to throw in the towel. But what happened? The Lord comforted us. Remember we saw that back in chapter 17? And the Lord said, be comforted. And we were comforted. They let it come. They chose to be comforted when they could. He said, go amongst thy brethren. That's how he saw them too. The Lamanites. And bear with patience thine afflictions. You'll have plenty. I will give unto you success. You'll have plenty of that as well. And now behold, we have come and been forth amongst them. We have been patient in our sufferings. We did our part. We've suffered every privation. Yea, we've traveled from house to house, relying upon the mercies of the world, not upon the mercies of the world alone, but upon the mercies of God. I love that he acknowledged that both of them came their way. God was merciful, and those Lamanites were too. Lamoni didn't have to let me be his servant. He could have gone with one of the four normal options. Slay me, enslave me, imprison me, or cast me out. But he let me in. And eventually let me in far further than anyone could have imagined. I am grateful for the mercies of God I felt as a missionary. But I am also grateful for so many merciful people. Some who joined the church. Some who at least listened for a while. Some who are about to slam the door. But did give us a cup of water. Or wish us well. I am grateful for good people. Wherever they might be. 29, we have entered into their houses and we taught them. We taught them in their streets. We taught them upon their hills. We entered their temples, their synagogues. We taught everywhere we could, we taught them. We were cast out. We were mocked. We were spit upon. We were smitten upon our cheeks. No wonder the proclamation had to be so specific in what not to do to the missionaries, right? We've been stoned and taken and bound with strong cords and cast into prison. But through the power and wisdom of God, we were delivered again. We have suffered all manner of afflictions. All this, why? That perhaps, maybe, we might be the means of saving some soul. It would have been worth it, just for them. We suppose that our joy would be full if perhaps we could be the means of saving some. How great shall be your joy with them in the kingdom of our Father? Now behold, verse 31, we can look forth and see the fruits of our labors. Are they few? The Nephites said there would be none. We hoped that there would at least be a few. But there is so much more than even we could have possibly hoped for. They are many. We can witness of their sincerity because of their love towards their brethren and also towards us. We have faith that none will fall away. They were put to the test and they passed it beautifully. Their sincerity is evidence of their conversion. And their love towards us and each other is evidence of that sincerity. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. If ye have love one to another, wow, they do. They love us, their former enemy. They love each other. When they used to not really care about each other or simply use each other to acquire things they didn't want to have to work for themselves. I think that's often a concern for missionaries and for members as they're watching converts come in. Is this convert sincere? Do they have any ulterior motives for joining the church? Do they really know what they're getting themselves into? Is this person going to stick around? A real committed covenant-keeping disciple or just a come-and-go quick convert? How do we help develop sincerity? How do we teach love? And how do we gauge someone else's sincerity? We look for love also. Love for the Lord and love for his children. There's actually an incredible story that came out of Nigeria in the early 1960s. The revelation on race and the priesthood was still almost two decades away. And yet, through miracles, dreams, visions, incredible experiences, the Lord was preparing his children to receive the fullness of his gospel. At the time, David O. McKay, president of the church, was receiving more mail from West Africa than the rest of the world combined. Some of it would be on letterhead that would say things like, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Kenya, Nairobi branch. And he'd look at these things going, we don't have a branch in Kenya. Who are these people? Well, he sent a man to go find out what was going on in Africa. His name was Lamar Williams. He was the secretary of the missionary department for the church at the time. 
1961, he went on a fact-finding mission of sorts to find out about all these people in Africa that kept asking, send us missionaries. We want to be baptized. I have a whole congregation waiting for you. I found a Book of Mormon. I know that it's true. I've been preaching throughout my village, and we're all ready for baptism. Well, one question the church did have was, are these committed converts? Or is there something else they might be looking for through church membership? Well, listen to the report that Brother Williams shared with the First Presidency when he got home. He's in Nigeria. He says, It was hot as blazes. My suit was wringing wet. When I turned the meeting back to the pastor, one of these men, himself unbaptized, that had gathered all kinds of fellow members, also unbaptized, he said, When I turned the meeting back to him, I heard a murmur all throughout the congregation. And he said to me, They don't want to go home. They have something to say. Then, for three hours, these people were standing up, bearing testimony to the truthfulness of the church and how they believed in the prophets. I could not believe what I was hearing. This is my favorite part of the story, and it reminds me of what Ammon just said in verse 31 about the sincerity of these incredible anti-Nephi-Lehi converts. One elderly gentleman said, I keep hearing you say, if we are sincere. Again, that was the concern. What's the depth of commitment? Do they understand what church membership would entail? Are they sincere in their testimony of the gospel? So this old man said, Elder Williams, I want you to know that I am sincere. I am an old man. I am sick. But when I heard you were going to be here, I walked 16 miles this morning to see you and to hear what you have to say. I still have to walk 16 miles to get back home, and I am not well. I want you to know that I am sincere, or I would not be here. I have not seen President McKay. I have not seen God, but I have seen you, and I will hold you personally accountable to tell President McKay that I am sincere. There is a convert ready to make and keep covenants with God. The incredible growth and overwhelming strength of the church in Africa is testament to the sincerity of converts like that. Converts whose sincerity is so beautifully expressed in love. Verse 32, yet more evidence of that sincerity. They had rather sacrificed their lives than even to take the life of their enemy. They've buried their weapons of war deep in the earth because of their love towards their brethren. Notice, it wasn't just because of their fear to commit sin against their brethren. No, it's beyond that, right? The disposition has changed. We love. And therefore, I want them to know that they are in no danger coming to us. We will not fight them back. In fact, we won't fight them at all. We love them. Verse 33, Now behold, I say unto you, has there been so great love in all the land? Have you ever seen anything like this? Not here, at least. Not among the Nephites. Our people wouldn't do this. Even these lifelong members. What would we Nephites do? 34, They would take up arms against their brethren. They would not suffer themselves to be slain. And I can't blame them. I mean, that's self-defense, right? Although we saw earlier a tendency to some offensive possibilities as well. But compare the Nephite willingness to fight to these converts' unwillingness to do so. How many of these have laid down their lives, and we know that they have gone to their God because of their love and of their hatred to sin. To love sinners and hate sins instead of just blanket condemnation of both. Do we love the right things and hate the right things? Or do we sometimes get things reversed. 35, now have we not reason to rejoice? Again, forgive me, Aaron, for what seemed like boasting. It's just joy overflowing. Yea, I say unto you, there never were men that had so great reason to rejoice as we. Since the world began, now this might be hyperbolic, because they're not the only ones that have felt this way. There are others back in 21 that are not natural men, others that are sufficiently penitent to know these things, to have experienced this great joy. But we're at least on their level, he's admitting. No one could possibly have greater reason to rejoice than we do. Yea, my joy is carried away, even unto boasting in my God, 
For he has all power, all wisdom, all understanding. He comprehendeth all things. He's a merciful being, even unto salvation, to those who will repent and believe on his name. So do what you will, Aaron. Call it what you want. If this is boasting, then guilty as charged. I will boast this way. For this is my life and my light. It's what I do. It's how I view the world. This is my joy and my salvation. It's what fills me. It's what redeems me. Yea, my redemption from everlasting woe. Yea, blessed is the name of my God who has been mindful of this people. He's aware of us. He's aware of them. We're a branch of the tree of Israel. This goes back to the scattering and gathering motif that runs so heavily throughout the Book of Mormon. We might have lost sight of it since it was so prominent and prevalent in 1st and 2nd Nephi. And then Jacob 5, Zenos' allegory of the olive tree. The Isaiah chapters, all of that is scattering and gathering. But he remembers this. God remembers us. We're a branch of the tree of Israel. We've been lost from its body in a strange land. But God remembers us. He's mindful of us. Even we wanderers in a strange land. Now, my brethren, we see that God is mindful of every people. No respecter of persons. Lamanite as much as Nephite. Whatsoever land they may be in, yea, he numbereth his people. His bowels of mercy are over all the earth. This is my joy and my great thanksgiving. And I will give thanks unto my God forever. Amen. I've heard a lot of amazing mission homecoming addresses, but nothing quite like Ammon's. What a message. To rejoice in God. To rejoice in others. Talk about fully living into both dimensions of discipleship. That's the joy that's available to anyone who joins God by repenting and exercising faith and engaging in good works and praying continually until God gifts us with a knowledge of his mysteries, gifts us with the chance to reveal them to others, gifts us to see thousands of people come to a knowledge of the truth. That's joy. Overflowing, brimming joy. And I've felt it, as have you. May we feel it again as we continue to offer ourselves as instruments in the hands of God. All those fingerprints left all over us.